169th episode of the Sausage Factory. This is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are, and who inspires them. Split into two halves, so this is focused on the developer themselves, and the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is League of War by Monkey Fun. Nick and Mike, who are you and what do you do? Hi Chris, uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Nick and uh, I'm the CEO at Monkey Fun, um, but I don't wear a big business suit and stuff. I tend to uh, look over the development of products um, and uh, try and steer the company into some kind of profitability, uh, but also trying to have fun along the way. And I'm the lead designer, at least for League of, for VR Arena, and yeah, I do all the content and work with the thing and do some project management, work with Sony, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Excellent. Well, that's the first question done. Nice and easy. It gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a little mini boss halfway through. and then Anyway, <laughs> so um, next question then. How did you make your start making video games? Do you want to go first? I can go first, but um, it depends how much... How much tape you've got, how much time you've got. I love to hear the very first embryonic stuff. Like, yes, I was coding when I was a fetus. I'm joking, but, you know, I do like to see hear the very beginnings of when you first thought, well, I wonder what if I did 10 print my I'm awesome 20 go to 10 kind of stuff. Well, it does depend how far you want to go back. So, I mean, I can I can ramble, and uh, and then you can you can interject with a with a kind of yeah, move it forward. <laughs> I um, I started coding um, at Dixon's, um, which was a um, you know a, a well an electronics store in, in the UK, and uh, getting onto computers was very hard back then because they were expensive and nobody had them. Um, but I was drawn towards computers and programming. Uh, and the only way you could do that would be to go into the store and uh, and program the display machines, uh, and and you'd have to do that while the the store assistant was uh, not looking or was was dealing with another customer. So you would sometimes wait outside the store for a customer to go in and then distract the person, and then you go in and write all sorts of all sorts of fun little pieces of code that would annoy the the, the shop uh, owners. Um, so that was the very beginning. So that was fun, uh, and and then you would learn from other people kind of doing the same thing as you. Uh, and you'd learn new cool things to do, like uh, you know, just printing your name uh, 50 million times across the screen gets boring after you've done it a few times. And so now you want to change colors, and now you want to make it bounce around. And then sometimes you go into the store, and, and there's some program running, and they're doing something completely amazing, like rainbow colors on text. And you're like, who did that? How did they do it? And, and, uh, and you can break the program. Uh, by break, I mean you hit the escape key, and it, and it kind of gives you a listing of, of that program, and, and you, you learn that way. That, is that embryonic enough for you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can empathize. <laughs> I was there as well doing all weird and wonderful things. And uh, also seeing games that were very advanced. Like I remember seeing Iridium, and as, as wonderful as Iridium was, you just saw there was the logo for it. And like, how did they do that? It's just a strange sort of multicolored flickering of the logo, like... How did they right. do that? That C sixty four can't do that, and it was doing it like okay, that's wizardry yeah. right there. <laughs> but yeah, there did seem to be a couple of camps forming. I was, uh, I you know, I be, I kind of cut my teeth on the uh, on the Amstrad CPC. There was kind of like the Amstrad and um, Spectrum. They were both uh, Z eighty machines, Z eighty machines, and um, and then there was the Commodore sixty four, mm. the Victoria. 
and it, it did almost seem like two factions. Not not that we were warring factions or anything, but no, uh, it never came to blows. It's not what I was aware. Just lots of seething and Commodore not having a good, proper basic, and I remember being yelled at like, "Why are all your games brown?" <laughs> but obviously this we're talking about mid 80s that's 30 years ago so clearly things have happened in three decades so maybe want to sort of summarize what you did between then running around your dixons (laughs) it's no longer exists now by the way everyone uh where you are now it's a potted history if you may yeah okay i'll I'll give you some beats um so i started uh i started learning to make games and doing um uh, graphics sort of got into graphics. I really liked visuals and graphics and programming kind of graphical effects and stuff and games. Um, so I kind of broke into the industry doing uh, mainly graphics for products and working in the early days with with Codemasters and US Gold and um, Assembly Line and let's see, uh, Empire was was. Uh, I started doing some coding there. I, I coded some. ST games, and then I got then the Super Nintendo came out, and uh, I I loved that thing um, just because it did everything for you in in terms of full screen scrolling and stuff, which were always difficult things to do on a, on an Atari ST and, and even on a Commodore Amiga. So when the Super Nintendo came out, it was a game changer for making games. Uh, I did a game for that, uh, Yogi Bear, um, Magic Boy. Um, I helped out with a sequel to Space Ace. Um, but uh, ultimately, I ended up at Codemasters, back back at Codemasters. So I was at Codemasters at the very start when we were all working out of huts in the in the farm there. Uh, and then I kind of circled back around to Codemasters after after a spate making uh, Super Nintendo games. And what did we do at Codemasters? I was working on Pete Sampras Tennis on the Sega Saturn. And then I was moved on to Micro Machines for Sega Saturn, which is one of those games that never made it out, um, which, was, which was a shame. I started... On Colin McRae rally at um, Codemasters before I left. Um, so I, it was a kind of a project that I was about to start, and then I had an opportunity in California to do uh, to come and work for Lucas Lucas Arts on uh, you know Star Wars games, which was very exciting at the time. So I uh, I left Codemasters and uh, and uh, somebody else took on Colin McRae rally, and that became successful. So I was kind of you know glad to see that happen. Um, I worked at, Co- uh, at uh, LucasArts for a long time, a good 10, 11 years, uh, covering a lot of development during that time. You know, Bounty Hunter, Star Wars, Force Unleashed, Indiana Jones, um, and various uh, external products for LucasArts. That was, it was a good 10, 11 years stint, that was. Um, and I got lots of stories to tell you about LucasArts, and, I, you know, I'm sure lots of people want to hear them as well. <laughs> 11 years. One of the big questions I get is, why did you stay there for 11 years? Because the president would uh, cycle through every four years and sometimes every three years there and people would leave and be dissatisfied. And I was I was always there. And, and I was like, well, the reason I'm here is because I need a green card to, uh, to actually leave. So um, so I stayed at LucasArts for a long time, but it, it was good. And um, uh, I have a, you know, a lot of good memories of, of LucasArts. And I, and I think it's a wonderful place. I think George uh, is, is uh, you know, a very creative uh, person um, that you know, provided the opportunity that was LucasArts. And um, like I said, I could talk for hours about LucasArts and all the people I met, the cool experiences a, we had. That's an amazing history, seeing the different phases of games and the hardware and software and, you know, often have someone, a veteran like yourself. And one of the things that marvel at is how 
the broad sort of power you have now, if you were given to yourself 20, 20 years ago, you'd lose your mind. It was like, what, you've got no memory yeah. restrictions? Not really, no. Just, just, you've got this bottomless well. What about the memory leaks? Yeah, eventually you'll find them, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so funny, so true. It and is. It, it is. It's like, well, you have to put restrictions on yourself, yes. Otherwise, yes. you'll never finish anything. You know, That's, that is <laughs> so cool. uh, Okay. So, so after Lucas, we uh, a group of us. Um, I think we pretty much shipped uh, Force Unleashed, um, and that was great—a great game to go out on because that, um, what you know, one of the uh, the data points we were given about Force Unleashed was that it that it made more revenue than any of the other LucasArts games put together, um, and that was like. That was huge. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was as much a sign of the times and a, and a sign of the power of the new consoles at the time. But um, you know, it was definitely a, a good a good product to go out on. And and we left to pursue what we could. See. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But at the time, you know, there was a lot of talk about micropayments and about digital distribution, and it's like there must be something in that. And you know, being able to um, deliver product digitally. Uh, and directly to the customer was something very interesting to us. And, you know, in fairness, I mean, I got a lot out of Lucas. Um, I really enjoyed my time there. I learned learned a heck of a lot. I met a lot of fantastic people. Um, but then there comes a point where you want to you want to have a success on your own and, and, and be rewarded for it rather than, you know, George Lucas getting more money for your success and hard work, right? Mm. I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship when you work with a company like, like Lucas uh, or any of the publishers. Um, but for us, it was a time to kind of move on and see what we could make happen ourselves. So a group of us split off uh, and set up Monkey Fun with, a, with an intention to do um, mainly digitally distributed self-published titles um, and just have fun doing that. Uh, and so that's, that was the, the start of Monkey Fun. And we're now, <clears throat> what, nine years, nine years into that. Um, so it's, it's been a fun ride, that's for sure. Um, with with the latest product being uh, League of War VR Arena, which is mm. what we we'll talk about today. But um, like I say, it do interject with any questions about any of that because there's a lot of stuff there. There is, and I just wanted you to, to to sort of like have a a blast of all of that. And it's lovely to 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 hear that sort of history, extraordinary sort of uh, tenure, and to see you saw how the there was going to be a change uh, with the delivery of games. Like wait. Everyone's got broadband and it's getting faster. Yes. Oh, wait. All of a sudden, <laughs> the, yeah. the, 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 the role of the publisher is not going to go away, but it's going to change quite a lot. And yeah. the, the method by which games are delivered uh, is going to change. And then Valve stepped in and did its thing. And Microsoft stepped in and did its thing. And Sony went, oh, that's the, that looks interesting. <laughs> And even Nintendo's done it too, and everyone does it, and it's just—it's an amazing sort of gets rid of a lot of the middleman and the publishing and all the all the mess. It does, it does, yeah. 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 Okay, I've never released a game that actually has a physical copy so far. That's yeah, no, that's your yeah, that's your yeah. claim to fame, isn't it? Yes, I mean there um, are there are special facilities that people do like you can get physical copies of indie games from various vendors uh, I'm not sure how that's working out but people are republishing games on physical media because people want it apparently like collector's editions of various indie games Do you are you aware of this? I, yes I'm, I haven't done it but I'm aware it's a thing 
I kind of think of it like collecting vinyl kind of is how I would do it. That yeah. said, this huge, like, you can't see me making hand gestures, like a three by five <laughs> full of physical copies of games because every game I've ever bought, just about at least for from the start of CD-ROM, I still have. So I have this giant thing of all of these game CDs, probably two or 300 discs. So, anything. so I totally get the feel of it. The problem is, uh, for me anyway, it becomes a space thing. I've loved going in and not having to worry about where my disc is and just saying, I'm going to download it again. No, 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 I'm just getting rid of my uh, slack here. So I get it. I just don't have room in my apartment for it. Would be <laughs> I, um, I, I brutally got rid of all the boxes and just kept the CDs and put them on CD wallets. I mean, it's like... I don't, I don't have to keep the CDs or the DVDs or whatever, but the optical media, let's call it that. But the boxes, why am I keeping these? There's no instructions in them. They look nice, I guess, but yeah, they're going to have to go. So they did, and it's very liberating. <laughs> I, I can imagine, yeah, that would save. It's, it's hard, though, it's what you said. It is Until you actually let go, it's like, but this is, this is my original uh, Supreme Commander. I don't want to give that up. <laughs> And, uh, there is some I kept. I mean, I kept Symphony of the Night because that would be ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I couldn't. I, that's worth two hundred and fifty pounds alone. So I just like, no, I, that. No, yeah. I can't. I, I, I can't. Do, I do get hit up by collectors sometimes. Like I, I get hit up by people saying, you know, I hear that you used to work at LucasArts. Do you have any original inbox copies of the games there? And you know, I, I uh, have to rummage around my basement for that. And um, I sometimes get. Uh, called up about um you know like oh i heard a rumor there was a micro machines for sega saturn at one time and that you were the programmer on it do you still have the code and i'll finish it off (laughs) (laughs) well maybe but i don't think that i can hand the code to you just like that i don't think it works that way but no there is some hardcore collectors out there who who are who find stuff out and they contact you and I'm, i'm kind of impressed that they come, but they kind of find out who you are and where you are and how to reach you. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, Credits on an unreleased game from 15 years ago. Yes. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> My next awesome. question to you both then um, is uh, a bit hard to get your head around, and uh, when you hear it, you go, "Well, that's a bit nebulous." So, so I help you answer it. But what are your biggest influences as creators? Well. Um, I I'm I have a, I I want to say it's a stock uh, answer here, which it isn't. I mean, this is my my true passion, and I and I bang this drum throughout my whole time at LucasArts, which is that Nintendo is is the biggest uh, influence on my drive um, for creating product, and <clears throat> it's uh, it's it's an you know it's an interesting angle. Like I say, it sounds like a stock answer there, like oh yeah, it's Nintendo. I love those guys. Um, I, you know, I've got a lot of, um, respect for, uh, Shiggy and, um, just, just the craftsmanship that go, goes into it, like a Mario game, for example, um, is just, it's just phenomenal to me. It feels like it's coming from a different world. And, uh, I often engage in conversations, especially, um, you know, coming to Lucas when I, when I arrived at Lucas, it was a very PC oriented company. Uh, and one of the reasons I joined Lucas was to help with the, uh, drive towards console. Um, and you know, PC gamers and, and Nintendo are, are almost uh, odds, I would say, in some respects. Um, and so I, I, you know, I often would relate gameplay discussions towards you know what Nintendo did and why. Um, and I've never been disappointed by a Mario game. And you know, it's kind of 
how do I put it? it? You know, some Mario games are not as good as others, of course, uh, and some may not provide exactly what certain people are looking for. But I always muse in the craftsmanship of of these products, and uh, and I and I really enjoy them. And you know, Zelda I think is another one. Metroid Prime, Metroid series. Um, there's there's some elegant very, very elegant design practices going into these products that uh, I really do marvel at. And, uh, you know, I think that Nintendo must have sold their soul to the devil at some point to get all of this knowledge um, or, or something like that. But it's it's to marvel at, and, and, I, always, and I always reference it. So, you know, I would say the number one uh, definite influencer driver is, is Nintendo, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave that there. Yeah. Because yeah. Mike's probably going to get fuming at me. I, no, I'm not going to be. No, I'm not going to be. So for me, it's a little different. For really, for design concept, I'm really coming out of board games, and like there's this idea that it's all about taking a simple system. Like my favorite board game. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. this. Is a little bit of a side. Is a game called uh, Fjords. It's a simple game. You place tiles, and then you place things on the tiles. It takes about five minutes to teach. And from this very simple set of rules, they huge amounts of complex strategic gameplay. And I just really like that. I feel like I was may, helping make board games far more than I was making uh, video games when I came into the thing, when I came into the business, I should say. As far as video games, I was a fighting game guy. And that is a very different thing. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting in that... To me, it was really, you can make a terrible fighting game. Just be awful, and the players will take it if they like it, and turn it into something really interesting. You get an emerging meta and emerging gameplay. And looking at some of these games that are, you know, not very well balanced often, that's how I'll put it, and having seen the gameplay emerge from players playing the same game, like Marvel, for instance, for 10 years straight, and turning a game into this amazing game and saying, well, I can skim off the top of this. See, these are these interesting conclusions they came from that were clearly never intended. So that's kind of where I come from, mm. probably, as far as influences go. That's fantastic. So the emerging gameplay of the emergence of the, the framework, there's a frame, there's something there, there's a game of something, there's something there and people make of it. It's a... Uh, it's something that user creators are probably used to now is the fact that once you put something out there, it ceases to be yours. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Um, so I think I know the answer to this next question already, Nick, uh, <laughs> but I don't know what Mike's response is going to be. Is um, What developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Uh, did you say what or who? Who... Or what? Either way, either way, it can be a company or a person. That is a tough question. I wasn't really prepared for that. Um, I mean, I guess you're right. It's like Nintendo and, and Shigeru Miyamoto. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I. Sorry, sorry to be so boring. It's going to be a terrible. Uh, this isn't it. It's just like oh, there's someone else who thinks Nintendo's amazing. Um, Mike, you, you can. You can. I, I thought of some. So, and the, just so I'm clear, the question is who or what influenced you and why? The other no, thing I, I mean, can relate to. It's, Sorry? The, we're moving on to. I mean, if, if you want to talk about influences, that's yeah. fine. Uh, but we're talking about you know, who do you most admire in the industry as a developer? Oh, admire? Uh, I'm going to get his name wrong. Uh, <laughs> Paul Rice III. He's okay. the man. He did Archon, he did Star Control. And Star Control 2. Oh, right. Yes. 
And like I did when I was a kid, uh, it wasn't Amstrad's and Spectrums, it was Commodore's and Apple's. And you couldn't get Archon on the uh, Apple II. So I had a friend that had a Commodore I'd go over to his house all the time. And it's very, and both those, and Star, Star Control 2 is of course this, now this Grail game that's everyone knows. But just his sense of joy and, his, and that cleanness again that we've kind of been talking about off and on that is so clear in his games, along with the joy and humor, just really, I go, that's what I want to be. That's what, that's what I would love to be able to do. So, yeah, that's my answer. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, I've got my last question in the first half. So, so well done for making it this far. And it's my favorite question because it gives you an idea of, uh, you know, what, what you do in your, uh, when you're consuming rather than creating. So what are you playing right now? Um, I'll, I'll go first. Yeah. Right now I'm mainly playing a, uh, roguelite, I guess you'd call it, uh, called Dead Cells. It's on yes. Steam. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. You, yes. Yes. Um, this, this is a work of genius. Yes. Carry on. Oh, it's, it's just a brilliant, it like, I, I almost feel like their reach is extent is extent, whatever you say, their reach is greater than their grasp. Because they haven't really gotten the Metroidvania elements into it as of yet. And there's pieces of it. Hmm. But it's a beautiful game, and it's really fun. I can just play that for hours. Um, the other thing I was playing until very recently was I love exploration games, which roguelikes have some of that, of course. Uh, I was playing just a ton of Civilization. But uh, my computer's having problems right now, so I had to stop playing that. <laughs> Um, and so in the thing, I've been playing Dead Cells, I've been playing Unexplored, which is another roguelike, which is pretty fun, and it's different in that it's actually in and out, so there's always a specific goal. And just this last week, since I started having these computer problems, I've gone back and I started playing Terraria again, which I haven't played since 2011, and they've added a lot of content since then. Wow. And that's... Go ahead. So, so what is the game again? Terraria. Oh, Okay. Yeah, and I played it when it first came out. I had a friend that was working on helping develop it in the very early days. And then I went away, and it's amazing coming back to a game like that after five years and seeing how it's grown. And it's grown. It's very different than it was when I first was playing it. So that's about it. Oh, And I'm playing a bunch of uh, Match 3, specifically Homescape, on my commutes for mobile because I'm on the train for 40 minutes, so that's a little different. I can't. Anyway, no, that's. I, I should just say I've been, I'm playing Zelda on Switch or something like that, right? And then <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to, just oh. to you know, underline that point, there, Nick. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. What are you? What are you? You know, distracting yourself with. So uh, it's interesting because I uh, because I'm doing games every single day and multiple of them. Um, sometimes it's good not to be playing games in your in your spare time, mm. uh, which is you know one of those kind of uh, paradoxes, I guess. Um, but I do you know I things interest me and I I, I see game playing as research more than anything else. Um, so mo- most recently, I think on PlayStation was um, Thief's End. I'm, I I like the uh, Uncharted st- series. One of the reasons that I was attracted to Lucas in the first place was uh, Indiana Jones uh, and the, the, the idea of, of doing a proper Tomb Raider. Um, and the Uncharted series was, was kind of, uh, you know, beat, beat us to the post on that. Um, but I definitely admire Naughty Dog as a company. 
and uh, and so I like to check out their work and, and you know and it delivers. So I'm kind of pretty happy with that. And Thief Sense easy to play uh, and and it's just a, a nice kind of adventure romp or something like that. I played a little bit of Last of Us and. Uh, and I explore things like, you know, when Journey came out, that was like, okay, play around with that. Um, but more recently, uh, you know, it's about what my son's playing because he hogs the, uh, he hogs the TV and the Xbox. And, and so I've been watching him battle on, on Call of Duty and, and, and playing with, with him on, on that and FIFA. And, uh, and more, more recently, Fortnite seems to be um, surfacing uh, at the moment. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, some Battle Royale game. Yeah, the only I mean I'm playing um Player Unknown's um Battlegrounds most of the time. Um right. but, but you know, that's a very different people think, Oh, it's a nice fun little arcade game. No, 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 no it's not. No. 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 It's one of those games which um if you see a muzzle flash you'd probably be dead. <laughs> yeah. <You're> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> what is that yeah. The people made this from Armour yeah. Three. <laughs> that, that stuff's great. That stuff's great, and I, yeah, I mean that's yeah. that's way I like it. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. In terms of in terms of VR, uh, VR obviously is is our latest game, and so um, that was born. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that in in the second half a lot more. But again, when I say research, it's like um, you know I spend a lot of time uh, getting into VR products uh, and watching that evolve over time, and. Uh, uh, a space pirate trainer, very very good. Um, super hot, very very good. And uh, and in, in fact, again called Form. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of that one on on VR, um, but it's kind of like a mist type experience in VR. Um, oh, I'll and try they, that. I don't know that one. It's it's very. I liked it a lot. Um, and it's it's interesting when you know when I when I pick these games out like Space Pirate, Super Hot, and Form. Uh, I think it will it'll lead nicely into, you know, the second half of this conversation yeah. as to, you know, what, what was important for us when we were developing VR. Um, I do want to definitely tip my hat to Google Earth VR um, because that's the only VR experience I've had so far that I can spend two hours in um, and, and you know, love every minute of it. It was, uh, it was very good. It's not a game, right? It's, it's just oh, a no. no, it's you walking down the street. That's a... <laughs> It's way, way to be. Yeah, sorry, that's oversimplified that massively, but ultimately, that's what you're doing. Yeah, um, yeah. Visiting, visiting my old hometown where I grew up and stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. Oh, look, that's that's gone. No surprise there. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my school? Oh, it's now a massive tower block. That's yeah. that's great. Yeah. So, Super hot. It's going to come up again in the second half. Okay. There's a lot to learn. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, personally, the, for me, Res on on the uh, VR was was fun, and Thumper, yes. that's a good game as well. And, Thumper, uh, is, yes, that's a good point. Thumper is great, and I, I haven't had the opportunity to try Thumper in VR yet. I really, really want to. Um, yeah, I only ever play it in VR. I can if I choose not to, but I don't want to. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I give the option. No. I saw that, was it last year, the experimental work? no, year before last, the experimental workshop at GDC had Thumper, and it was clearly the winner of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and you, I played it, um, I don't have a VR set myself, so it makes it a little hard. Yeah. But it, it, you do lose, you have to listen, you really have to listen, and that's the, that's the wonderful thing about that game, You're 90% of it is listening, then you're having to move your thumbs <laughs> and uh, every now and again. Okay. Yeah. 
well, that's great. Well done. You made the first half. So we're now going to move in to the second half where we delve deep into League of War. So, Nick and Mike, what is this extraordinary game? Tell us, what is League of War? So, yeah, I don't know. It's like you ask, <clears throat> you ask Mike and I, you get two different questions because I'm, I'm definitely kind of on the uh, the front presentational side, and Mike is on the on the back end side there. Um, but yeah, it's it's like that tabletop game of war that you always imagine the future would would be when you're a kid. It's like, no, no, you're going to have hologram stuff in front of you and you're going to play someone at the other end of the table, like games like Crossfire and stuff that were, were these these games. Or like you're watching Star Wars and they have that cool the holographic, holographic chess. chess thing and combine that with, was it Minority Report where the really cool things are you reach into the screen? You can't see me gesturing, but you reach into yeah. the screen and adjust the screen. It's like you take yeah. those two concepts yeah. together and turn them into a into a war game. Yeah, mm. tabletop battler. Yes, where by playing on the table, you are within the within the world. You, you are controlling an army through this tabletop uh, experience. And so that's that's like kind of like the VR format of it, um, or the VR presentation of it. And then the format of it is more like a fighting game, right? Where you're choosing a, a character, yeah, a commander, choosing a, a specific with, squad, and going up against another commander with another specific squad, and uh, engaging in um, head-to-head combat. We'll say head-to-head combat. Yeah. Is that is, yeah. is that rambling? No, no, that wasn't rambling at all. There's a lot to take in, but ultimately, that's what you've got. You've got one-on-one, to, to, uh, a battle between two sides, or whatever those those sides might be, and you have. Um, an array of units that are available to you in a limited way. But we'll talk about yeah. that in a second. Um, but it is, you are standing in front of a table. I mean, again, one of the VR experiences I love to do is the pinball. Sounds a bit strange, but when you're playing pinball and you're looking down on the table, it's a lot easier to play. Yeah. <laughs> and you just yeah. feel that it's like, oh, I'm actually standing in front of a real table. You're not, but it feels more. I don't know, intuitive. Um, yeah. One of the things that really came through when I'm working on this, I've, in the VR games I've played, is the most fun is when you're interacting with something in VR. So like a pinball table is perfect, mm. where you're interacting with this table in a way you couldn't. Or like, again, to bring up like super hot, where you're doing these things, there's these objects that you're grabbing and picking up and moving and doing this and that with. And so it's kind of the same concept for uh, VR Arena where, you're, as you say, you're standing at the end of the table and you're picking up and interacting with these tanks and planes and objects and using them in a way with very fine control for holding it. So one of the mechanics that struck me was very interesting because I'm a big sort of tabletop player of games, although I don't do um, Warhammer stuff because you get a tape measure out and go, what, are you putting curtains up or something? Uh, so um, I, don't, I don't do that. I draw the line. Just no. But when it comes to, other than that, I'm fine. I I'm, I'm, don't mind what kind of game I'm playing. Um, and what struck me is this quite interesting concept is that you have these units that appear on various pedestals around you and uh, you then pluck them from those pedestals and then drop them down into a 
defined space in front of you. It's very clear and brightly. There's no ambiguities. Like you need to put your unit somewhere in here, otherwise it ain't going to go anywhere. So you drop it in, and then it will just go off. And I'm just quite interested as to (laughs) when you drop that, and it's gone. It's like that's it. I'm off. It's like a you know Dota now. It's like a creep. I'm off. What? Um, I'm I'm gonna do my own thing. Can I tell you what to shoot at? Well, you did at the beginning, but not now. I'm just going. Uh, why? 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 Why did you have that? Why did you say? You know, I know the answer to this question, but I want you to expand on it for the audience. Is that why did you do that? Why did you have it so that you dropped the unit in and off it went? So. The short answer, there's kind of a short answer, a middle answer, and a long answer. The short answer is that at some point, unless you're walking around, that unit is going to be out of your space. And so that's also that box, your spawn box is designed to be about the range you can reach without moving. And we thought it was really important to have a stationary experience that you could do sitting. And so as part of that, at some point, we needed already to have a robust behavior for the unit so they'll act on their own once they're out of your reach. Um, so that's the short answer. The short answer is you can only reach so far. Mm. Their slightly longer answer is kind of becomes a balance issue, mm. especially when both against the uh, AI and also in social play, which we really end up working pretty well, is if I, on the VR side, have the ability to say, I, then I can pick up this unit again and re-aim it, then that is a huge competitive advantage that you have over the other player mm-hmm. because you have a control and you can keep pulling your units back. You can build can, a wall. Yeah. You can, yeah, it, it kind of breaks. It, it then doesn't become a game as much as it becomes a, a free-for-all of, of just stuff things down on the table and, and amass a huge amount of, right. of DPS and off you go, boom. And it's like to jump to a fighting game metaphor a minute in Street Fighter 3, you could build super meter by punching the air. And so what players would do competitively is they both stand in the corner, punch, 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 punch up until their super bars were full and then would attack each other. And it would be very easy in VR arena for that to be a thing. If you, cause you, as Nick said, you just keep pulling back your units and build a wall and then let them all go at once. Mm-hmm. And by releasing them, we're forcing you the game to move forward whether you want to or not. Now that's that's the yeah. So that's the uh, what's the word? Um, that's the that's the reasoning for doing it. And then I think the explanation, the other side, there's the other side of the question, um, which is um, that the game is is designed for you to be making strategic decisions and interacting with VR with the units that you have. And if you're suddenly changing the game to having to contemplate and interact with things that are going on at the other end of the table, things that are going on in the midfield, um, your your brain begins to explode. It's too too much. And we wanted this. We wanted the, um, the, the, the player's experience to be completely absorbed by which unit's coming up next, and where am I going to place it, and what is the person doing at the other end of the table? Was was enough? You know, the the, the kind of rule of, of three things to to be uh, uh, measuring at any one time. Um, and, and so, you know, it it's a great question. I really like this question because we we took the uh, the game uh, out on a on a tour during development to um, you know a tournament um, play and uh, to to some gaming. Um, like uh, bars in San Francisco, yeah. um, and demoed it 
uh, to get feedback from people. And you know, one 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 thing that was, that became kind of apparent was that people did, um, you know, there was there was a tendency for them to want to to reach out and and, oh, re- yeah, and they, re- want, they wanted to <laughs> and rethink. Uh, oh no, I don't want that guy. I want him. I want him back. Um, and we we tuned that out. Um, I, you know, it's it's uh, you know that's a whole story in of itself. But after a while, we people stopped doing that. And I and I think it was mainly what we did was we speeded up the rate at which things would spawn, so that people didn't feel that they were sitting there doing nothing for too long. Um, and also, uh, people didn't realize that you could um, supercharge your units as well. Um, which is something that um, may be one of your other questions, but because um, you can supercharge your units, you are busy. Uh, you are busy building your uh, your attack structure, uh, and there is no time to 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 reach out to the middle of the field and and start thinking about what the guys are doing at the other end of the field at this point. So so hopefully, I think like you said when you asked the question, it's like you kind of know why, but it was a question you wanted to ask and and, um, and get an answer for. So hopefully that's mm. yes. a three sixty answer there. Yeah, nice, nicely done. Thank you. Um, I knew it was an interface issue. I knew it was, uh, um, you know, it's making sure that people, you can't walk around the table. It's there, but you can't walk around it. Besides, you can't walk around and stand next to the, your opponent. It's absurd. It's yeah. not snooker or pool or whatever. It's not like that. This is yeah. chess. You don't walk yeah. around to, it's, I mean, just imagine playing chess, which is not something I do that often. And you walk around, can you just stand here? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's yeah. how I see it. I, I equate it to, to chess because there's a lot going on there. But um, one of the things, I mean, uh, I've been playing RTS games for decades. I think we all three of us have. And, um, you know, there's a tendency to enact grunt rushes. Yes. Um, and what mechanics are there in uh, uh, League of War um, what, to stop this from happening? What have you done to curtail that kind of thinking? I know what it is. Again, yeah. I'm playing uh, no. enough. Thank you for it... um, So basically, we started with a kind of a Clash Royale style um, interface where your units would come up just based on a random list, and you'd have four in front of you, and you pick one, you go, you go, you go. And they would, you had an energy supply that was in front of you, and you pick. And so, as you say, what happened at the start of this was people would do things like, they go, and I'm just going to keep picking cheap units and throwing them out as quickly as possible, and to do a rush. And so we went around that two ways. The first way, which I thought was a really interesting change that took a while, is we changed the metaphor for how supply is delivered. In a lot of games, you'll have a, a supply bar. It fills up. You can spend it on whatever you want. If you spend it on a bunch of cheap things, you can do that. If you spend it on expensive things, you can do that. There's a kind of a mathemat- mathematical problem, what we call the fuzzy-wuzzy fallacy in that two half-price things are better than one full-price thing, almost always. And so, again, rush, that's why rushing works, because you can have twice as many. And so we reversed it. We said, now we're going to say these units are cups filling up. And so when you deploy a unit, you have new units added, and it starts as empty. This makes it actually essentially nearly impossible to rush, because the next unit that comes in cannot be deployed immediately no matter what. This changes the thing substantially because you cannot repeat units. You cannot um, 
just pick, especially when we get to the type splitting, which is the other thing we did, the same type of unit over time, you have to either wait or spread out your unit selection. Mm. So I'm going to talk about unit generation now because there's, there's basically little platforms and uh, you sort of select each one and there is a way where you can manipulate what you want. You, know, you don't have to wait. You can actually, what you say, supercharge. You sort of hold on. But when you're doing that, you're doing absolutely nothing else. <laughs> and it's quite interesting. Um, how have you found players have been using this during play? What's the kind of thing? Do you find when people find it, they start to use it excessively? So, uh, in my experience, um, it takes players a few games, four or five games usually, to find the feature. And then they use it some, and by the time they're advanced players, they're not doing anything else. Or they're using both hands is what they're doing. But they're, they're ABC. They're always being charging. And they want that fine control. They want to get, no, I, need I know what I need next. I need this now. I personally actually play it a little differently. Whereas I will generally be charging, but I will leave, intentionally leave gap times. So occasionally I'll get a wave of the things I don't want. Um, but... Most players, once they know it, they'll constantly be charging because they want to pick the proper unit for their tactical situation. Hmm. So I'd say our testers, for instance, are charging 90% of the time. But they're using both hands as well. That was another thing yeah. that Chris just mentioned, kind of interesting. You say, you, you know, that's all you're doing. Um, watching watching the, the QA guys, those are the, the testers uh, playing the game, you know, as we, we walk past the test pit. Um, you know, it's funny because... <clears throat> If it wasn't for the social screen, you wouldn't have a clue what these people were doing, which is which is uh, probably a conversation for for later in in this um, podcast. But yeah, you would walk past the, the the guy; he's got his headset on, and he's he. It looks like I, I don't know. It's like he's playing a, a drum machine on a rock band almost. It does. He's kind of reaching over with his right hand and charging something, and then something becomes available on on the. Well, once on it's the available, right. then he'll pick up this one. He'll pick up that one. He'll snap to his end. Then, with his other hand, he'll reach over to whatever his next target is. Yeah, so he's crossing that one. And, and, and yeah, yeah, during play testing, it was fun watching how many people play the game with just one hand versus how many people play like ambidextrous, uh, mm -hmm. picking up units left, left and right with left and right hands, and then you end up crossing your hands. Um, and it, it's fun, it's actually fun to watch someone do that. Yeah. Um, if we if we get to talking about the uh, the interface and, and why how it got developed yeah. that way, we, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, yeah. yeah, it's not that you're only charging. And, you know, it's it, it implies that you know exactly with 100% certainty what the next thing is that you should deploy, and then you go and supercharge it. Yes. But I think that there's a, there's a caveat there that you've got to know that that's what the next thing to deploy is. Yeah, well, we, we, there are different units. There's the, the, there's the infantry, the tank... The air unit and the uh, artillery, of course, and the the light recon, uh, yes. um, and it's uh, all of these things. It's rock paper scissors, although yeah. it's in the lizard Spock um, stuff. It's all got all of that thrown in, and there's definitely like chess. You know, you you have some units that are much stronger than others, like you, uh, um, pedestrians. I oh, call on that. I don't know why, but the uh, infantry. Uh, great at the taking down helicopters. It's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> kind of makes sense. Uh, and because he can't be seen, they're difficult for them to, to lock onto, and they can just have a lock, rocket launcher and boom. And visuals are, are incredible, the actual visual feedback. But I just want to talk about 
Um, so kind of actually my last question for you, for you both uh, is the, the, the when the, this game really comes alive when it's local couch play. In my humble opinion, yeah. um, it seems to be much uh, geared towards that kind of you know really you did what why. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I know because I'm a human being and I'm horrible. Um, but um, it seems to be a key component of, of the game. So how have you found human versus human battles play out when compared against when you're trying to simulate that in AI? Well, the basic thing is that our AI isn't super smart. Um, and so it will do its best. The main thing I'll, I see with people is that uh, players make very specific choices. And there's an interesting dichotomy, which I'm sure you picked up a little bit on if you've been doing a lot of uh, social couch play, social play as we call it, um, is that the VR player has a huge advantage in one way because he can aim, he can place forward, he can place backward. The couch player can't. And so there's a very interesting asymmetry but what the couch player can do is they're, in general, more efficient. Is they will get more units on the on the field, or at least more units they want on the field. But it was a challenge um, for us, obviously, because we want this to be again a huge uh, key. It, we were looking at was fighting games, and you want a fair experience, and you want somebody to be able to do it and set up this fair experience and set up their surprises and have it say. No, I outsmarted you. I knew this trick. I knew this combination worked against you. And I think that's what I might hope, and it sounds like we're succeeding, what we really wanted with the social play was that players could actually have tactics and hold units back and do waves and do like tank screen artillery, for instance, is a very basic tactic you see we use a lot that the AI doesn't do. The AI basically is just faster than you. And so with the social play, you can actually start to see these tactics actually begin to emerge. So I'm not sure that actually answered your question, but that was kind of beating around how I expect it to be different. Yeah, uh, you, you, you nailed it. It's all right. It's good. It's, um, uh, there is so much more to this game than meets the eye, which means it's why I had you on, because I thought this needs to be discussed, this needs to be talked about, because there's initially the thing, oh, I'm just popping little units on the ground and let them go off and hopefully I'll win. Uh, and, you know, but what's, what's going on here is that there's layers of the onion, yeah. you know, and there's much more going on than just simply popping a unit down and letting it go off, you know, because it's like a card game in many regards. I've, I've actually almost see them, you know, like, oh, he's played that. Well, the only way to counter that is if I play this. <laughs> exactly. And there's another whole piece of that, which um, is the custom squad game, where we're trying to set it up so uh, you can't have two, unfortunately, but you can say, oh, my friend really likes playing Mutai, and Mutai is really going to have a hard time, so I'm going to hop in. I'm going to build my own squad, and... I'm going to really get into the strategy of what makes these units good and, and make my own one. And then when he comes back over, I'm going to be ready for him. And I'm going to pull his squad out. And he's going to have no idea what to do. And, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that the, the other side, you, don't, you, you can't tell what the other side has got ready. You can't see it. 
At least I don't think you can see it. So it's like, oh, you, you have, you know, you can. They've yeah. got the same array of units available to them to a point. One, but, one of the fun know. things. One yeah. of the fun things with the social players, you get to see what they're targeting. Yeah, <laughs> you, you see your units get lit up, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't really tell what you're right. That you can't really tell what they have on deck, so to speak, until it's actually on the field. Yeah. To, to, yeah. To answer that specifically, one one thing that you. One thing that I thought was cool that you mentioned, Chris, was you know how there's there's many la- layers to it, and, and you know, and I'm I'm glad you you took the time to 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 see that. Um, there are kind of almost uh, design layers to this. That uh, one of the things that is attractive about VR is that it's a toy in a lot of in a lot of senses, which means that there's a lot of VR experiences that you engage in. And it's an experience you've never had before. And so in, in that sense, it's a toy because it's like, oh, wow, it's cool. I just put this headset on. I'm in this strange world and I do things. And I've never done that before. And it's fun to play around. And so many, many VR experiences, just naturally, just the way uh, new platforms evolve and, and because uh, VR is a novelty, uh, they come off as like toys. And we felt that that was an important aspect to the VR experience because um, with, with a product that with a platform that's growing, um, you're, you're finding that you're reaching people, uh, uh, family members that maybe aren't gamers, uh, friends who aren't gamers maybe, who want to know what VR is all about, and you put the headset on them and throw them into a, the middle of a deep, hardcore battle, first-person shooter, simulator, strategy thing, they, they, they're going to they're gonna throw up and they're going to be like, I don't like games, I don't like this, I don't know what the hell's going on, you just put me in a strange world and people were attacking me, I didn't like it kind of thing. And so that's why I think some of the toy-type uh, products work. Um, they, they work okay um, in, in the early days, right? And by toy, I mean something that you just put the headset on, no one's hassling you, just, just play around, have some fun. And so that was one of the design ideas that we wanted with League of War, is put the headset on. Don't don't worry. There's no one. No one's going to punch you. Nobody's going to attack you. Um, have a look around. You're just at a table. There's some units there. You don't have to do anything if you don't want to. The game doesn't actually start until you until you start until you start, which is you know um, interesting. But um, yeah, what do I do? And and then you know it's like there's a toy unit. It used to be a hologram. Now it's actually real. I'm going to pick that up, and you pick it up, and and. Uh, and so you're having that toy experience. And then the next step of it is is the mashing experience, which is like, okay, I'm just going to pick up everything as it appears, throw it on the table and watch it trundle down the table. And I can have an experience like that. It's it's funny. I'm just, it's tanks, it's infantry, it's it's artillery. Uh, and then later on, you know, you get your air units and, and, uh, and that's fun. We had one of those moments with the air units when it was like, pick it up and hold it in the air and let it fly off your hand kind of moments was, was a great moment for us when we were on, on the design. Um, and so there now suddenly it's gone from a toy to being a product that you can mash and really enjoy watching the visuals, watch the uh, units. You can look at them very close up. Uh, the, the models have, have been uh, created very high fidelity so you can hold them to your head and look at and inspect them very closely and send them trundling down the screen. And they're going to be uh, launching missiles and firing and explosions going on. And, you know, we, we organized it such that when units explode, they tend to fly into your face a little bit more than, than, than is natural uh, just for fun. And so there's that kind of like, oh, actually, this is more than a toy. It's a game and I can just mash and have fun. Um, but then, it, then, as you've kind of noticed, there's a, actually a depth to it, which is that there's a strategy. And it's like once you start to play through the first five, six, seven campaigns, um, the battles, you, you kind of notice that uh, you can't just win by mashing. 
it's there's a strategy here and, and then that's where the debt starts to come in but by this point you know you have entertained the family you've entertained the other members of your family in the front room with a with a cool toy that's this kind of hologram that you always dreamed the future would have uh, and it's fun to do mm. uh, there's this depth uh, of, of strategy I'm sorry for rambling I just wanted to kind of you know get through to, to that and then end up end that kind of uh, train of thought with leading to the social aspect which is that you can play one against one and there's a strategy there or you can just mash and, and have fun and, and see who wins and and everybody's laughing and everyone's having a good time so um, yeah that was that was kind of like the designs the design structure there for, for the whole thing yeah I can only applaud you and your team for, for making such an extraordinary thing. It's so simple an idea, and yet it's just unraveled into something, or built, it's not unraveled, but built onto, on from that, a solid foundation into something that does have a lot of depth, and there's a lot more there that initially meets the eye, and I knew there was, but I wanted to experience it for myself, and as the more I played it, the more I got out of it. It's definitely, um, it, it, the, the more you give, the more you get out. It's one of those, and that's great, and I can thank you for that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for your kind words. Yeah. Um, it, it's. Uh, I do. I mean, you talk about you know when you have people around. So I usually I let them play the X wing. Like when I fly an X wing, all right. Love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, because it's you know everyone knows what those is. What one of those is. And like, oh, that's, and what's quite funny is I look down and go, I'm not getting that. It is junk. There's <laughs> wires hanging out, and it's like you're not getting that. Oh no, I wouldn't either. <laughs> they did. They did. They did build these things out of junk. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've actually experienced that at all, but uh, I would highly recommend if you, if you haven't. Um, so, gentlemen, uh, League of War VR Arena is out on PlayStation VR. Yes. Yes, yes. it is. Um, mm-hmm. It worked with uh, worked with my Move controllers. I have seven of them. Any guesses why I have seven of them? Um, I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> Why would I own seven move controllers? There's well, a definite reason. So you got some of the PS3, got two of the PS3, you got two of the PS4. If you <laughs> think one of the VR uh, hits comes with move controllers, I get to five or six, so I have no idea. No, remember Johann Sebastian Joust? Yes. Oh, oh, oh really? <laughs> really? Yes. yes. Oh, I, I have seven player Johan and Sebastian Joust. That's why. Not, I, no, clearly we made the best thing ever, but that's the second best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, that's why I, I've ever played that. I'm sure most of us have. It's an extraordinary game. Sorry to deflect from from the oh, VR cool. arena. But, no, uh, yeah, yeah. If, 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 to try and explain to people, it's a video game about a screen. What? <laughs> anyway, um, thank you very much for your time, both. It was fantastic talking to you. Um, you've been great guests, and I'm more than welcome to come back on, talk about whatever future project you have. Um, uh, it would be, be great to talk about that in a similar depth. I hope you enjoyed it. Absolutely. Uh, yes, for yeah, sure. Had a great time, fun. Chris. This was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. 
And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer who listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the stablemate podcast, should we say, of spong.com. Bye!